Discovering Behind the Scenes is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Use an integrated investment account from Interactive Brokers to earn, borrow, spend, and invest globally from one account. Learn more at ibkr.com. From the Interactive Brokers Market Lounge, I'm Carol Master, and joining me is Katika Roy. She's the CEO and founder of Pipeline Equity. We'll talk about our company in just a moment, but first I want to get to the beginning. Welcome. So nice to have you here. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Tell me a little bit about your your origins, your family. Sure. So I'm the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. My mom was born in 1939, the year that World War II began on the Isle of Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles that of England, closer to uh, France than the mainland. And in a very that, different time, right, from where we are time. today. Yes. And in 1940, when uh, France fell to the German army, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, and so he evacuated them. And my mother, uh, at the age of 18 months old, was separated from her mother and her uh, four siblings placed in an orphanage and uh, adopted a year later. Wow. And at the age of 21, when she was emancipated, moved to the United States for equality and opportunity. On her own. On her own. Okay, and then tell me about your dad. My dad. So my dad is Hungarian, and my uh, my father and uh, three sisters escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. They lived in a refugee camp in Austria for just under two months when uh, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. Right. This was a mission to kind of protect these people, get it them was. out of a bad situation. It was. And um, and they were part of the 21 Hungarian refugees on Air Force One. Unbelievable. Did he tell you about that? He, oh, yes. It was a huge part of our growing up. It was a story that we all knew. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I uh, became an adult, I reached out to President Eisenhower's library, who sent me all of the all of the documentation about the mission. So Christmas Day in 1956, mm-hmm. he's on U.S. soil. <clears throat> he is on U.S. soil in New Jersey. And he, your parents ultimately meet. I mean, both of them had fascinating <clears throat> stories, not easy stories. No. And that must have stayed with you. Yes, it did. So one of the things I talk about is that my parents' fight for freedom is connected to my fight for fairness. And what was, I'm the youngest of six children, and what was always engendered in us was this, what were a few things. One was to always do your best and to never give up because that's how my parents ended up here. Right. Also, to use the opportunity that had been given to us, you know, because three of my siblings, myself included, two of my siblings, we were born here in the Mm -hmm. U.S. And to understand the gravity and and the fortune that we had to be born in the U.S. and that we should do everything to maximize that opportunity as well as as to give back. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. And you have a responsibility to reach a hand back. Well, you know, there's something I was reading about your mom and dad. And you said your mom really stressed education. It was important. I'm one of seven. And my parents, too. One was first generation here. One was second generation. Um, education was first and foremost. Yes. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And that we shouldn't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And everybody was going to get a formal education. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, my mom's point was this, that if you have your education, no one can take it away from you. And if you look at that from an economic mm. perspective and a labor economic perspective, there are really three key pieces of labor economics, which is education attainment, labor force participation, and wages. Education attainment being the most important. So so mm-hmm. that was her, her point, was we give you the best opportunity by ensuring that we, we give you a good education and you use it. 
So talk to us, too, about your dad, because there's some interesting stories about, um, you remember going around on business meetings with him? How old were you? Five. Five. <laughs> I was very well behaved. Oh my God! <laughs> you you are not misbehaved that often. Why my was dad. he? First of all, why was he taking you along? I find that funny. Um, you know, my or dad. Different. Yeah, no, my da- no, it was intentional because my dad's passed away now. But but my, I talked to my mom about it, and she said yes. And I, you know, for my father, uh, he. Um, he really wanted to make sure that we could see what was possible. Mm. And so the coupling of his story of having come here pretty much with almost nothing. And uh, the the one that sticks most in my mind is I grew up in Northern California. My father was building a hotel in San Francisco. And so he was sitting down with then Mayor Dianne Feinstein, the first female mayor of San Francisco, to essentially get agreement on the... Um, with the planning commission, so, right? So to get the rights to build the hotel, and what he wanted to show me was you could do what he had done. That mm-hmm. I, what would be possible for me? For me, what stuck in my head was here's this powerful woman negotiating with my father. And, you know, uh, what, 13 years later in the first election that I could vote in was when Diane Feinstein was elected. And so this, this sort of carrying through of this story was incredible. You then went on to get a couple of degrees. Yes. You got your three. Un- right. Three degrees. <laughs> you studied political science. And government, your undergraduate degree. You earn graduate degrees, MA in educational technology, and you have an MBA. Yes. Okay. And then you went to corporate America. I did. For a long time. Yes, 23 years. Tell me about that and what you saw in terms of, because eventually this gets to your understanding that things aren't always equal when it comes Mm -hmm. to men and women. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I was, so as a poli-sci major, I was exposed to, you know, uh, the topic of women's rights and women's suffrage. And, mm-hmm. and then I was an intern in D.C. Right. They did it all wearing those white dresses and we're done. No, not even close. <laughs> I don't close. think I even heard about the white dresses. <laughs> but, anyway, you know, but I, it was it, what was. And then we heard about the 60s and Gloria Steinem. And right. I met her when I when I was there. And and but for some reason, it, it just didn't seem like it was that relevant to what women were facing, I, you know, I entered the workforce in the mid '90s, right? And so I thought, well, I'm not really sure. I don't really see the applicability of that. And then it stared me right in the face, which was uh, after my when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And two days optimized. after I came back, <laughs> yeah, two days after I, I came the back, yeah, exactly from maternity leave. Uh, I was asked to take on a new team, and I already had a team. And then two weeks later, I was asked to take on a third team, which is great. Awesome opportunity. Right. Exactly the right time. They see what right? I can like, do. Fantastic. Yeah. Like, totally. And and my male colleague was one pay grade higher than I was, and he took on one additional team and also received additional compensation for that new team. So I went to my new- How did you find that out? I asked him. You did? I did. Well, and I he told he, you? He did. I just said, what are you- I said- what are they paying you for that new team? And he told me. So I went to HR and my new manager, and I said, like, how do you want to make me whole? How do you want to work this out? And there were a lot of conversations and not a lot of action. So because I had a poli-sci background, I thought there has got to be a law that makes this illegal. So I'll go figure out what it is. So I did a bunch of research, and I found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair mm-hmm. Pay Act. And I just called HR and said, this is a Lilly Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? And? And they uh, increased my level, gave me back pay, and increased my pay. Katika, though, I've got to ask you, because I think a lot of women have found themselves in those situations, and they're like, I'm afraid to say anything because all of a sudden I'm going to be marginalized. Absolutely. 
where'd you get the confidence to do it? Because it's not always easy. It seems mm-hmm. like it worked out for you, but it often doesn't. Well, one of the for things women that, in similar situations. Totally. And why should I have to say anything? Right. I agree. I mean, certainly because it's just story, the right thing to, to do. do, and the fair thing to do. It is. And and my, you know, my certainly my story is one of success. My question is, why did I have to research my rights in yeah. order to be treated fairly? That's the biggest question. And coupled with that. When you are raising your voice in the workplace for an unfair treatment, that's fundamentally an economic question mm-hmm. because I'm also a breadwinner mom. Mm-hmm. So when I raise that question, if I become marginalized, it doesn't only impact me. Right. There are three other people that rely on my income to feed them mm-hmm. and clothe them and give them opportunity. So. I actually think we need to shift from this focus. Yes, raising voices is important. We need to ensure that companies are taking the responsibility to ensure fairness. Okay. So what I want to talk to you, because your own experience, you put that in your company, right? Yes. So eventually you leave corporate America 22 years and you do your startup. Yeah. Tell me why you did that, why you, you knew you needed to go out on your own. So I there you are. You have a family responsible. I do responsibility. Kids. Yeah, you're supporting your family. Yeah, and you're like, I'm going to go out on my own. Well, there were a few different pieces of it. Um, I was actually on a radio show, and the name changing women, and the topic of the was the topic was negotiation and pay, and they asked us if we ever thought the pay gap would be closed in our lifetime. And I said, well, not until we make it an economic issue. And that was the, oh, my gosh, I think I can solve this. Right. Nothing nothing talks like numbers. Yeah. And I said, well, I think I can solve that. So we started um, – so that, that was a big catalyst for me. It was also the idea that I had enough – if I failed, I had enough time to make it up. Right? So And I was going to invest in myself um, versus a whole bunch of other people. Tell me about starting that company, and when did it feel like things were starting to fall into place for you? Probably because it's the, hard in the beginning, right? Oh, it's total. It's hard now. <laughs> you know, Sorry, it's just different. How many years in? Yeah, two years. <laughs> okay, in. but it's just—I would say, you know, you just get uh, bigger problems to solve. You know, like it's—I I think it, to some extent, pressure is. So one of the things Billie Jean King talks about is pressure is a privilege. It's a privilege to have those problems. It's a privilege to have this opportunity mm, to start point. this company. I—I I stood on the fence for a little while. I started Pipeline um, on Equal Pay Day 2017. Nice. And it was that, oh my gosh, this is absolutely. And then as soon as we made the decision to go, it just took off. You know, and, and we did uh, we did the research study with, across 4,000 companies in 29 countries, and we found that for every 10% increase in gender equity, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. So that's that was our basis. Mm-hmm. And then we actually started with a social listening campaign called Fix the Leaky Pipeline, which was around changing the narrative around gender equity. That gender equity fundamentally is about equity for all, and how do we bring everyone's voices, men, women, people of color, you know, understanding that this is really about improving the economic pie for everyone. And it's using AI, right, and data to do this. Yes. There's no fudging the pipeline. You take the biasness out of it. Yes. And then you get the truth. Correct. And we give them the path. So what we, but the core of the pipeline platform is, is it's the company's data, our algorithms. We intercept HR decisions across Mm -hmm. the five pillars of talent. So hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotion, provide recommendations about decisions they're already making, and and through that, provide them a clear path to parity. So when you start working with a company, 
what's the first thing you have to do? Or ask them. Or get them to ask Once themselves. Once they sign the deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the two things that we do. I don't want do, you to give it all away. No, no, no. It's okay. The two things that we do is we have our core set of algorithms, and then we need to understand their human capital uh, processes so that we can actually ensure that when you get a recommendation, right. it makes sense to you within your culture. I'm curious. So, okay, you're two years in on your company. Yeah. I mean, what are you most proud of? What's the impact that you're starting to see? I'm really proud so I fought to, I'm a breadwinner mom. I mentioned that. I fought to be paid equitably twice. Mm-hmm. I told you one of the stories. I won both times. And when that happened, I made the decision that I wanted to ensure that no one who worked for me um, had a pay equity gap. And the thing that I am most proud of at Pipeline, which is one of the reasons I started it, is that I, I do, we do that at scale. So there are people whose lives I have impacted and their families, I have closed pay gaps and equity gaps for people I have never met. That's fabulous. And that's the thing I am most proud of. And I, that's terrific. And they didn't have to speak up and ask for it. Our software told the company, this is what you need to do to ensure equity of opportunity. Well, and I think sometimes the best lesson is when something like that happens to an individual that gets them thinking, oh, wow. That's just the way to do it. And and what a loyal employee, right? So if your company comes, you know, comes to you and says, you know, we actually need to offer you better equity of opportunity. Here's what we're going to do. Now you're incredibly loyal to that company. All right. So you mentioned early on, just to wrap up, gender parity in terms of income still a long ways off. Yes. Yeah. But- well, right now it's 217 years. 217 years. Yeah, uh, globally. 165 years in North America, so U.S. and Canada. And in the last two years, uh, the U.S. has slipped four spots. And the biggest thing that's in the way of making that better, improving that? Uh, the uh, two one is in the U.S. is political representation. So for all the fanfare about the elections last year, we're still 27 points off mm-hmm. uh, from representation in Congress. And then uh, CEOs. I mean, we are 51 percent of the population, 57 percent of college graduates, and five percent of the Fortune 500 CEOs. Got to change that for it to be a difference. Absolutely. All right. Going to leave it there. Um, Katika, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Katika Roy, she's CEO and founder of Pipeline Equity. This has been Bloomberg Behind the Scenes from the Interactive Brokers Market Lounge. Behind the Scenes was brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers constantly strives to innovate and create technology to automate your trading experience with their advanced trading tools. Learn how Interactive Brokers helps lower your cost to maximize your returns at IBKR.com. I'm Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg Behind the Scenes.